Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guests today are Sean Griffith, professor of law at Fordham University, and Abraham Cable, professor of law at UC Hastings College of the Law. Today's episode will focus on reps and warranty insurance in mergers and acquisitions, and will look to papers both guests have recently published in the Minnesota Law Review. Griffith is the author of Deal Insurance, Representation and Warranty Insurance in Mergers and Acquisitions, and Cable is the author of Comment on Griffith's Deal Insurance, The Continuing Scramble Among Professionals. I'll links to both papers in the show notes for the episode. Sean, Abe, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks very much, Andrew. Thanks, Andrew. I wondered if we could start this conversation with maybe an introduction to RWI or reps and warranty insurance. What are its origins? Where does it fit into the traditional legal framework of a merger and acquisition agreement, M&A agreement? And does it serve as a substitute for anything? Sure. So this is Sean. Why don't I take a first stab at that and let Abe come in and correct me when I get stuff wrong. So rep and warranty insurance is what it sounds like. It's insurance for breaches of the reps and the warranties in a merger agreement. It's been around for some time. It evolved out of the tax liability policies uh, underwritten in the London insurance market in the 1980s. And folks started trying to use it for different sort of event risks in M&A. And then eventually the reps But it didn't really catch on right away for a number of reasons that we could maybe explore. But it has caught on recently in the last five or six years to such a degree that in the private deal market, where private company targets, estimates are that maybe 30 to 50 percent of all deals involving private targets use representations and warranty insurance. In a world in which we didn't have representation warranty insurance, and as you note in the paper, it is a growing but not a universal practice, what would we have in place of that? Or what do we have in place of it? Well, um, so the one way to think about this is that the reps and the warranties are, in a way, insurance. If the buyer's buying the company and they're not sure about something, they get a rep from the seller that such and such is true. And if it turns out not to be true, the seller pays. And so without rep and warranty insurance, you have the merger agreement. And so an interesting question for me, the interesting question of rep and warranty insurance is, why do we need it at all? And so when you think back about the function of the reps and the warranties in a merger agreement, what their role really is to do is to generate liability risk that becomes really the engine driving the exchange of information in the deal, right? So the reps and the warranties create liability risk. They place liability risk up to a certain extent, and depending upon what the rep says, depending upon the indemnity, depending upon you know various caps and baskets, but they place liability risk on the seller for things being false in the reps and warranties. And In light of that liability risk, the seller produces information to the buyer in the disclosure schedule to avoid that liability risk. And that is really what drives the credibility of the information exchange between the buyer and the seller. So one of the interesting questions for me, at least, is that when you move that liability risk away from the seller and off onto a third-party insurance company, how does that change the dynamics of the deal? So now the liability risk lies not 
with the seller. And many of these policies, interestingly, are they, they're basically no indemnity deals. So almost all of the liability risk gets offloaded onto the insurance company. When I say almost, there's usually a little bit of a retention that sticks with the seller. And that retention often is split between the buyer and the seller. So it winds up being like less than 1% of the deal risk that winds up staying with the seller. But the rest of it gets offloaded to an insurance company. And so what are the implications of that? And one of them would seem to be from the buyer's perspective, that the seller isn't trying as hard to tell the truth anymore, or at least not trying as hard to produce the information that the buyer would seem to need in the exchange. So the whole information exchange that happens in the transaction would seem to be at least complicated by the existence of this insurance product. Yeah. And I'll I'll just, I'll jump in quickly. This is Abe and I concur with everything Sean said. I do think it's worth noting, you know, there are in theory sort of different varieties of these policies. So there's a version of it where the seller could buy it so that it was insurance in the sense of the seller actually has to, you know, be primarily liable on the reps and warranties and then looks to the policy for uh, sort of a backstop to that. But my understanding is almost uniformly, this is something that buyers are buying. And it really is the primary, if not the sole recourse for breaches of representations and, and warranties. It's not to say that there aren't some sort of gaps in what the insurance coverage are and things like that. But I think it's, it's fair to say uh, it the way that Sean did, which is essentially what used to be this apparatus for allocating risk between buyer and seller is now just sort of priced and offloaded to an insurance company. And there may be you know, deductibles and things like that. But it really is a, a fairly fundamental in my view, sort of reconfiguration of an M&A transaction, at least for the acquisition of a private company where post-closing liability is sort of a major deal point. This is contrasting it to acquisition of a public company where there generally isn't this sort of post-closing liability structure in the first place. It seems to me quite an interesting sort of turning point in the history of deal design. And it's fairly remarkable, I think, that 2014 is usually the date people seem to cite as its as its sort of point of critical mass. And before that, it really is a fringe product. And now within certain contexts, primarily private equity, it's fairly nearly ubiquitous at this point. So, so it's just as a matter of sort of deal evolution, it's fairly remarkable, I think. So if I could chime in on Babe said, there are a couple of really interesting points that he raised. And one is the idea that it could be purchased by either the seller or the buyer. And that's absolutely true. And and when I mentioned the evolution of the policies, the early policies were sell side policies. So just as Abe said, where the, the seller would buy the policy, kind of indemnity policy in case it has to pay the buyer. For breaches of its reps. Now those, as they have also said, those, those policies are now buy-side policies where the buyer in the transaction purchases the insurance policy. And this change from the buy-side to the sell-side might have something to do with the explosion of rep and warranty policies in the last five years or so. Because when it was a sell-side product, there was really no one between the insurer and the insurer's liability. So the insurer had a lot of due diligence to do in the transaction. And so because the insurer had a lot of due diligence to do, the insurer would have to get in there and took a lot of time to underwrite the product. Once it was the buyer in the underlying transaction that purchased the insurance policy, well, the buyer has its own reasons to do due diligence, not the least of which is to get the price right in the acquisition. So if the buyer is already doing due diligence, 
the insurer realized that they could sort of free ride on the due diligence that's done by the buyer and wouldn't have to do as much diligence themselves in the transaction, the underwriting became a lot faster. So now it's the case that rep and warranty insurance can be underwritten in a couple of weeks, that the due diligence that uh, the insurance company does is all secondary based upon essentially the, the diligence memos that get written by the transacting parties. And there might be one call with the insurance carriers where they have an opportunity to ask questions of the parties in the underlying transaction. So that difference, but going from sell side to buy side might be one of the differences that facilitated the explosion in rep and warranty insurance in the last five or six years. So you both talk about the disruption that reps and warranty insurance has created within the M&A world and within an M&A transaction. Sean, I, I believe you referred to the disruption in information flows between the parties. And Abe, I think you referred to disruption in the, the structure of the deal itself. I wonder if we could maybe talk about what are some of the potential downsides and upsides from an efficiency or normative perspective for reps and warranty insurance? Let me just say, I, there are, I think the, the insurance product, rep and warranty insurance, raises really three kinds of puzzles. And the one is the one that I outlined, you know, the, the credible commitment problem. Uh, you would imagine there's some kind of a credible commitment problem. You might also think there's an adverse, so if you're interested in insurance markets, you might also think that there's an adverse selection problem here, where the parties that are riskiest are the ones that are buying the insurance. Obviously, you know, very common in certain kinds of transactions, but it's still not 100% of the private deal market. So maybe the parties that are buying the insurance are the riskier parties. And you would think that from an insurer's perspective, uh, that raises an adverse selection problem. And then you would also think from an insurance perspective that there's a moral hazard problem here. I mean, after all, free riding, the insurance company free riding on the due diligence of the transacting parties, when the transacting parties no longer bear meaningful liability risk, I'm not sure how the insurer can get comfortable that there isn't some hiding of the ball in the diligence process, which essentially amounts to a moral hazard problem. For me, you know, and I, I want to kick this over to Abe to maybe I'll, maybe what I'll do is I'll kick it over to Abe to say the to tell to say the good stuff about the insurance. I'm not necessarily negative on rep and warranty insurance. I just think it's just puzzling. For me, though, one of the fundamental questions is why either transacting parties would buy the product at all. And what do I mean by that? Well, like I said, reps and warranties are an insurance product. They are in the merger agreement. And so when one party bears risk or shifts risk one way or the other, that's what the reps do. And you would think that everything that the rep and warranty insurance accomplishes in terms of shifting risk could be shifted by the parties themselves. Now, it's shifting it off to a third party. And ordinarily, when we buy insurance, when anyone buys insurance, the ex explanation is risk neutrality. What we're trying to do is have risk-averse parties move the risk to an, a risk-neutral party, the insurance company, because the insurance company diversifies the risk through its shareholder base and through its other insurance that it sells. And those, for ordinary people like you and me, when we buy our houses, we can't diversify that risk. But these are sophisticated transacting parties with their own investors. So the buyer is very often a private equity company. The seller is often private equity or you know, often a company of another type with other investors. And so both parties are often risk neutral in the sense that corporations are risk neutral. So when you have risk neutral parties buying insurance, you, the typical explanation for insurance just doesn't apply. It can't be risk spreading. There must be something else going on. 
And, you know, if you run down the typical explanations or why corporations might buy insurance, they might buy it to because insurance companies are experts at preventing losses, or they might buy it because insurance companies are experts at managing certain kinds of claims. Uh, they might buy it because there's counterparty pressure to buy insurance in some cases, like fire insurance or general liability insurance. None of those apply here. There's no loss prevention advice provided by the insurer. There's not any claims management expertise here because these, unlike other kinds of insurance, are not third-party claims where somebody else is suing the insured. Rather, it's the counterparty on the transaction. So they're first-party claims. And so there's not really claims management expertise that the insurance company would possess. Uh, there's also, uh, interestingly, no counterparty pressure. Like there's no creditor or no licensee that is insisting upon the insurance. So it's just a kind of a puzzle. And I have an explanation for it, but I, maybe I, before I you know, give my kind of dark explanation, let Abe chime in on some of the things that people say about why the product is, is very good and useful. When I went into this research project, there are certain places where I kind of expected to see rep and warranty insurance. So one would be public company sales where there's really big practical limitations on the ability to have post-closing liability. So the reps and warranties allocate some closing risk, but they're generally not a way to allocate post-closing liability. So you sort of would expect to see it there, but not really where you see it, or you might expect to see it with a lot of sort of owner manager types who like want to sell their business and then be able to move on with life and can't handle the the wild swings that could occur through a large indemnity claim. But again, that's not really where you see it. You really see it. It's, it's very much attached at the hip with private equity. So, I mean, there are some sort of, I'd almost call them like surface reasons why rep and warranty insurance makes some sense, right? So there's just the fact that maybe you don't in some scenarios want to be waiting a long time to resolve escrow disputes. And it's nice to be able to just sort of accelerate the finality of the transaction by being able to sort of price the risk with a premium. There might be situations where you have really, I guess, divergent views of what the risk is and the, and the insurer might be able to cut through that thorny knot in some way by just being willing to put a price to it. Uh, some people talk about the fact that there's kind of a social cost to asserting post-closing liability claims. In other words, sometimes some of the sellers are actually supposed to be involved in the business and it would be easier, more sort of tactful, I suppose, for the buyer to haggle over post-closing liability with an insurer, a third party, rather than this seller who's going to have a continuing role at the business. So those are all reasons why the product has a lot of uses, but I still don't think it quite gets to the puzzle that Sean is sort of teeing up here, which is of all the places you'd expect to see this sort of turn to pricing the risk um, and spreading the risk, it, you just wouldn't expect it to be a private equity thing. And so, so I guess I'll, I'll give the hot potato back to Sean to uh, give his theory for why you do see it in that context. Well, that, I mean, Abe teased it up really nicely. I mean, and there are a lot of stories about why in a particular type of a setting. So one of the ones that Abe mentioned is, you know, that certain of the employees of the seller come over to work for the company post-acquisition 
or they're the founders or whatever. And in that circumstance, it would be awkward to say the least for the buyer to have to sue them under a, a breach in the merger agreement. And so maybe it makes sense there. The trouble with all of those sort of explanations is that the insurance is much more pervasive than those kinds of structures are. And I'll just I'll take one more stab at just trying to turn this into kind of a strange puzzle. The thing about insurance is anytime you buy insurance, you pay more than you get, right? Because if the insurance company sold you insurance at the actuarial rate of the incident occurring, they would go out of business, or at least they wouldn't be able to produce a return to their shareholders. So actuarially, you know, when you buy insurance, you're paying more than, than you're getting in terms of payback in, uh, in claims. Now, everyone knows that. And the reason that we normally accept it is because we're risk averse. But again, big corporations and big private equity funds aren't risk averse, right? Private equity funds are just pools of money. Um, and their investors are the most wealthy investors. And it's not like even public company investors. These are sort of specially qualified investors that can invest in private equity. And as Abe said, rep and warranty insurance is attached to the hip of private equity. And so there are a bunch of obvious questions that get raised here, which is like, one of which is like, well, why don't private equity firms self-insure? In other words, like there's some kind of a, the general partner get causes, you know, creates a self-insurance fund and causes the limited partners or the limited funds, you know, to buy that product from the general partner. We don't really see that, or at least I'm not aware of that. It would be interesting if that structure did exist. So there must be something about, there's something going on in the structure of private equity. And Look, I, I'll, I'll sort of give my, I'll give the short version of what I think the answer is. The answer is within private equity, there are some people that are not risk neutral, and there are some people that are risk averse, and those are very specifically the general partners in a private equity fund structure. And in other words, the people who are compensated by getting into the carried interest or not. And so the way that private equity works is there's like a hurdle rate. If the investment doesn't produce above the hurdle rate, there's no carried interest paid to the general partner in the private equity fund. And that hurdle rate is around 8%. So if you don't beat the hurdle, you don't get into the carry. And if you don't get into the carry, the general partner is not supremely well compensated. Usually the general partner's compensation structure is a 2% management fee, that gets paid no matter what, and then a 20% carried interest that only gets paid if you get over this hurdle. Well, who's risk averse? The general partner is risk averse because if there's an investment that goes into the private equity fund that all of a sudden, because of some idiosyncratic reason, doesn't get them over the hurdle, they don't get compensated like they would. So they're very sensitive to putting things in the fund structure. And again, these funds are not going to hold a vast number. Particular fund is not going to hold a vast number of investments. So the, the general partner might be very risk averse to investing in things that aren't going to negatively affect the hurdle rate. And so might be willing to pay for this insurance to prevent a breach of the rep from stopping them from getting over the, the hurdle and into the carry. Now, there are two ways to spin this. If that's true, and, and by the way, the insurance, of course, is also paid you know, by the limited partner investors. So the general partner has all the more reason to uh, to buy the insurance. But there are two ways to spin this. One is this is like an agency cost of private equity where you have the general partner taking advantage of the limited partners in the fund structure, imposing a cost upon them that they would never agree with. That's the glass half empty story. There's a, also a glass half full story, of course, which is that this is like an e efficient compensation structure for general partners in private equity funds. Because if the general partner 
is extremely worried about getting over the hurdle rate with every investment to the level of you know breaches of reps being a major issue, that general partner might be risk averse in selecting the investments in the first place and might wind up selecting the types of investments that would not maximize the return for the limited partners. So the limited partners might be in favor of rep and warranty insurance to make the general partner non-risk averse uh, with regard to investment selection. And I'll just say, I mean, I to me, that sort of resonates with me. And, and I think like Sean, I, you know, I don't necessarily think talking about it as an agency cost is necessarily to impugn the general partners, just in the sense that you know, agency costs are pervasive and corporate managers have similar differences in risk profile to their shareholders and pay and compensation is engineered to handle that. And, you know, it's just kind of part of life of, of hiring people to do stuff. So that would make sense to me. I also think, and this is not a fully thought out idea, but, but I just, I wonder if there is something sort of mutually beneficial about the way that potentially reducing these sort of longer term escrow mechanisms into a price point might accelerate the whole process of finally calculating returns and distributing returns and things of that nature. In in other words, to the extent that the use of this product, you know, essentially speeds the sort of ultimate reckoning of each portfolio investment and therefore maybe the fund itself. It is important in private equity that there be a sort of, you know, recycling of private equity funds and calculations of returns so that general partners can be you know, held accountable and capital can be redeployed. And to the extent that the old way of doing it was tying up money and creating sort of you know, zombie funds that were living longer than they needed to, that's not good. Maybe there's something to the sort of speed and velocity of the deals that's kind of good for everyone with this product. On that point about the speed and velocity, I sort of agree with Abe that there might be a lot of reasons for people not to want to have an escrow, hold an indemnity in escrow and have the the zombie situation that Abe was talking about. But I'm always struck by the fact that, look, one alternative to that is just to go naked and not take an indemnity. And if you're the buyer doing that, that might sound scary. The way you would obviously compensate yourself for that is by changing your price, changing the purchase price. And, and that's, of course, exactly what rep and warranty insurance is. The buyer buys the rep and warranty insurance. And so insofar as the total cost that the buyer is bidding includes whatever the buyer is paying the seller, plus whatever the buyer is paying the insurance company, that's in there, right? It's in the price. Now, if it, taking the point about the load, right, insurance always costs more than you get, it seems like there's an efficiency on the part of buyers if they just go naked and discount by less than the cost of rep and warranty insurance. Now, and I mean, maybe, and you know, Abe's point is partially that the math is really hard, but uh, you know, if anyone's good at that math, it's the fancy finance guys at these private equity funds, and they're probably better at it than the than the insurance guys. You both engaged in some original empirical work as part of your research. Could you maybe discuss that work that you did and some of the observations or findings that you took from that empirical work? One of the frustrating things about rep and warranty insurance, like many kinds of insurance products, is that the insurance itself is opaque. You can see the shadow of the insurance in the merger agreement because the merger agreement will change to reflect the fact that insurance exists or doesn't exist. 
but you can't actually get the insurance policies themselves because they're not publicly filed anywhere. And even when there's litigation against an insurance company based upon the, the policy, these usually get arbitrated in the context of rep and warranty insurance. And so you don't even have a, a PACER filing with the insurance policy as an exhibit. So in light of the fact that the policies themselves are hard to get, I, I, I sort of tried to get empirical information in two ways. One was qualitative, which was first of all, just by talking to people. So I went to a bunch of industry conferences. I made myself annoying at cocktail parties. And uh, I got to know some of the people that are involved in the underwriting and brokerage part of the, the work. Also the lawyers, they're very important, as Abe will describe in great detail, the lawyers who are so important in this business. So I got to talk to all these people and eventually as a result of these conversations, designed a survey uh, that I sent out to insurers, brokers, lawyers on both sides. So the deal lawyers, as well as claims lawyers, and then also to some private equity folks and to try to get their feedback on how the product works, how they understand what they're doing when they use the product. So that I would describe as qualitative empirical research. For my quantitative side of my paper, what I wanted to do was look at the merger agreements that have rep and warranty insurance and compare them against merger agreements that don't. And so in a Westlaw, uh, another database that, that has private acquisition agreements, I just downloaded as many private acquisition agreements as I could that had any reference to the rep and warranty insurance policy. Usually that would be in covenants and then compared it against a control set uh, private agreements that did not have rep and warranty insurance. And then I compared some of those terms between those two. I coded differences in different types of uh, provisions that would appear in the two merger agreements. So that would be more what I would call my quantitative approach to the empirical research. And I focused on the the qualitative approach, I suppose, maybe maybe because I'm naturally annoying at cocktail parties, so I didn't even need to make myself so. But uh, I, I, I talked to people, I talked to brokers and underwriters and M&A lawyers. In the spirit of full disclosure, it, w- it was a fairly small and exploratory set of interviews. P- part of that is that I learned about Sean's project, which is really quite a comprehensive piece of research and really gave a, a great picture of some of the some of the main goings on I mean I, I'll, I I don't mean to just sort of scoop his findings but you know chief among those I think is the fact that the reps that sellers give tend to be more favorable when this insurance product is out there sort of speaking to this potential moral hazard problem and, and I think that was, a, that was an important an important finding my research and my project, built in a way on Sean's and focused more squarely on the professional roles and particularly effects on lawyers. So so I was really talking to people about their role in the process and their career paths and things like that. So these are not rival research projects, but mine is sort of complementary to what Sean has produced. And if I could just say, having been at cocktail parties with Abe in the past, there's nothing annoying <laughs> about Abe at cocktail parties. <laughs> Oh, I feel so much better. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I hope I'll, I'll be able to kind of witness that firsthand someday when when the world is a little bit more normal. I wondered if we could think about the role that reps and warranty insurance plays in terms of the role of lawyers and other players in the process, be it uh, finance people or underwriters. Does the presence, does the growth, the rise of reps and warranty insurance suggest or point to different thinking about the roles of those players or maybe point toward a future of non-legal innovations in the M&A process? 
Well, so, so I think again, that sort of the best way to get at this point is to, again, frame it in terms of what I expected when I heard there was this new product that everyone was using. What I expected having some familiarity with traditional deal process is that you would have insurers, specifically underwriters, guiding the deal process a fair amount. In, a, in other words, you know, when, a, when an underwriter for a public offering has to assume responsibility for what's in a prospectus, you, know, you better bet they get involved in the wording and digging into the thing. And when a lawyer you know, sticks their neck out and gives a legal opinion, they choose the words. I mean, maybe based on a template or a, something like the Tribar guidance on on what a model opinion should look like, but absolutely they're driving at that point when they're responsible for the words. And here we have insurers being responsible for the words, but what we see is what Sean alluded to a little bit already, which is that it's a fairly hands-off process from the standpoint of the insurers. And so, so you end up with the insurers relying on the buyer and seller to negotiate the terms of the reps. You wouldn't expect that just in the sense that the sellers aren't responsible for them. So we kind of expect them to give things away too easily. Now that's a little bit of an overstatement because there's often sort of a a retention or or the possibility of some liability up and above policy limits. But big picture, um, you know, sellers are less responsible. We'd we'd sort of expect them to not negotiate as hard. And then uh, sort of an important point about the structure of these policies is they don't cover things that are unearthed in due diligence. A known risk is not covered. These policies cover kind of residual unknown risk, items that are not scheduled and not known to the party's intelligence. And so so it just creates this question of how much you could trust the diligence of the buyer in that circumstance when whatever the buyer unearths actually falls outside of the policy. And what's just surprising to me was the degree to which, despite all of the things I just mentioned, the underwriters are really just doing this over-the-shoulder diligence or diligencing the diligence or pressure testing the diligence. There's lots of different words people use for it, but essentially they read the buyers, lawyers, and other experts' reports, and they have a diligence call where they ask a bunch of questions. And this is a fairly strong customary process for underwriting these things. It seems to be the way everyone does it. So that's sort of a long-winded way of saying, I expected that this was some sort of significant sort of incursion on the lawyer's role in terms of writing or formulating the reps, in terms of driving diligence. That proves not to be the case. It seems like more than anything, it's just an additional transaction that lawyers are you know, trying to sort of manage and fit into the deal. And so th- that is a surprise and, and perhaps a bit of a puzzle, but it seems to be the case. And I think that Abe's project and focusing on the lawyer's role is just so interesting because I, I agree with what Abe said. This product creates a number of interesting problems for the lawyers that are negotiating the deal. As Abe said also, the insurance is underwritten to cover only what you know Donald Rumsfeld would have called unknown unknowns, right? Things that are not known going into the deal and things that are not uncovered in the diligence process because they get scheduled out. And why is that? That's to deal with the adverse selection problem, right? Because when the adverse selection is a problem when the one side knows more than the insurer. So if there's something that, if it comes out in the negotiation process, the insurer is able to deal with it. If it doesn't come out, that by definition, nobody knows it. And therefore that's not an adverse selection problem. 
by solving the adverse selection problem in that way, as Abe alluded to, you create the moral hazard problem, which is to say the incentive for the transacting parties to try hard to get some stuff right, but not necessarily to try hard to unearth everything that could possibly unearth. And those sort of weird incentives in the due diligence process that are created for the lawyers, that's a very interesting problem area that this this product really increases. And that was a focus of a lot of what I talked to brokers, underwriters, lawyers about that. There were a number of reasons that people gave as to why those moral hazard problems are not as severe as they might look on their face. And the one that I found probably most convincing, I think Sean actually sort of alluded to earlier a little bit, which is that buyers have a bunch of reasons to figure out what's going on with the business, right? So so they may not be as myopically focused on post-closing liability and reps and warranties. And so they just want you know, a good business, a good asset. There's sort of business diligence to do that very much overlaps with the things that care about in the legal diligence. There's also the fact that that the coverage amounts are typically only about 10% of the deal price. So, I mean, you still have a sort of category of sort of catastrophic claim that you need to guard against. It also is, I think, the fact that law firms, and especially the ones that sort of dominate this area, specifically doing deal work, in this private equity context have sort of, you know, banked a lot of equity uh, reputationally. And so there is a feeling that the law firms won't sort of short arm diligence on purpose because of the reputational problems and even potentially legal problems that could occur in terms of coverage being voided and things of that nature. If they were to really just do sort of a theatrical due diligence that really wasn't intended to take a good look at the risks. So for a variety of reasons, underwriters seem pretty comfortable with it. And the more I dug into it, the more I I did understand that. I mean, there's also, of course, the, the main motivating factor, which is just sort of commercial necessity that the product didn't work in early stages when there was independent underwriter due diligence. And when it started to work was when a bunch of M&A lawyers went to go work for brokers and underwriters and designed this diligence process that would sort of fit in more or less. Yeah. And Abe hits on it perfectly. There are the lawyers that work in this field are actually former lawyers from the firms that were doing the deals. In other words, lawyers who used to work at the firms that as the transacting parties lawyers. And so they're looking over the shoulder of transacting parties counsel. And so you might think that mitigates the due diligence problem to some degree. I will say that in my research, one of the deal lawyers that I talked to about this product said to me, look, there are sort of two ways the diligence happens. One is where you do the, all the due diligence first, and then you put together your bid, and it's kind of a slow and gentlemanly process. And in that situation, you can imagine that the insurer is able to free ride on the buyer's due diligence because the buyer is really trying to unearth things that would go into the pricing uh, calculation. But there's another deal situation, which is like the fast and furious auction, where the parties agree that they'll exchange some information during the auction process, but then they'll do more robust due diligence after the auction is over. In other words, after the deal has priced and the the bidder has the winning bidder has emerged. In that situation, a deal lawyer told me that the is where the incentives get most squirrely, because you can imagine the buyer in a situation like that where the deal is already priced not having a strong incentive to uncover things in the subsequent due diligence that would lead the buyer to not have coverage under the rep and warranty policy. 
What key takeaways would you like listeners to have from this conversation and from your papers? I'll jump in, which is I, I sort of came away with, a, I guess, a few takeaways. Again, with my focus being a, a lot on these professional roles. One is that I do think, though I had gone into it thinking of this as somewhat of a threat to the legal profession because of how central reps and warranties and diligence and all those things have been to what deal lawyers do, at least how they cut their teeth and get thrown onto big deals. I had thought of it as this sort of threat, and that just turned out not to be the case. And in fact, you can sort of view it as an indication of just how ensconced lawyers are, <laughs> how central they are to this deal process as sort of project managers, as reputational intermediaries, all the different roles that they play. And in fact, it's this is really a product that's largely sort of created by lawyers. And, and so it's kind of a, I call it a, a JD plus success story. And this JD plus meaning a job that doesn't require a law degree or, or bar licensing, but that is one that lawyers go into. The other one I would say is that I, I still feel like this is a bit of an unfinished story. And, and I do a little bit of sort of speculating in my paper about the fact that it, it is as of now, a product that's really just sort of priced based on competitive factors. It feels like the underwriting you know, might be prone to having a turn in the underwriting cycle and, and when claims experience comes through. It's really sort of in trial and error phase, I would say. But it seems to me that at some point with the amount of information that underwriters are gathering and the strong incentives they would have to price this unknown, unknown risk accurately, and then just technologies like artificial intelligence and natural language processing, that there would be an ability for the underwriters to get pretty precise about what the risk and therefore the price of different reps should be, and maybe to even assert a little bit more control over what the scope should be. I, I, it wouldn't blow me away to see some way down the road that there are sort of menus of representations and warranties drafted and offered by insurers that people select from rather than having such a deferential relationship to what the lawyers are doing. So those would be my takeaways. There's a lot in what Abe said that I agree with, you know, but I, I entered this project thinking that this was kind of a puzzle and I emerged thinking that it's a puzzle and a continuing puzzle. And, you know, one thing that Abe said is that, that maybe insurers will get even better at pricing and pricing it accurately. But one thing I wonder is whether if it's priced accurately, the transacting parties will want to buy the coverage at all. All of my research was done in what insurance types would call a soft insurance market. In other words, where insurers are trying to underwrite policies and there's more underwriting going on. There are a lot of new entrants coming in. And so there's a lot of price pressure on the policies. Premiums are going down. But we're now in a different kind of market. And, and as Abe said, the reps that the parties were able to get in that situation are very generous, shall we say. So for example, the insurers would acquiesce to a form, often acquiesce to a form of damages that are sometimes referred to as diminution in value or multiplied damages. In other words, if there's a $1 million contract that doesn't get renewed, which is a breach of a rep, the damages for that are not $1 million. It's $1 million times whatever the EBITDA multiple is that the buyer placed on the transaction. So if it's a 12X EBITDA multiple, it's $12 million, not $1 million. Insurers would acquiesce 
to contractual terms like that in the soft market. And so one thing that will be interesting to see is if they continue to acquiesce to kind of agreements like that at now that we're in a harder insurance market. Another interesting question is now that the deal market is different, to put it mildly, whether the parties will continue to want rep and warranty insurance or whether it was itself a phenomenon of a particular deal market. And what deal market was that? Well, it was a deal market where the world was awash in excess cash. Maybe that's still the world that we're in. And another question, I guess, that I have coming away from this, in addition to how the world you know, looks in the future, these different markets change, is will, and Abe alluded to this earlier too, will insurers try to underwrite a rep and warranty product for public company deals? There are some technical barriers to that, which is to say public company deals don't have indemnities, uh, don't have escrow accounts to fund the indemnity. But you can imagine solving that problem with synthetic reps that basically are made by or to the insurance company so that there winds up being some kind of a possibility to create a public company rep and warranty product. It would be interesting to see if that happens. And if that did happen in a public company deal, that would suggest that maybe the explanation for this product being so tightly tied to the incentives of the private equity market are less than what they look like now. But as of today, this is very much a product of, of the private deal market. Our guests today have been Sean Griffith, Professor of Law at Fordham University, and Abraham Cable, Professor of Law at UC Hastings College of the Law. We've discussed the papers that the guests have recently published in the Minnesota Law Review. Griffith is the author of Deal Insurance, Representation, Warranty Insurance, and Mergers and Acquisitions, and Cable is the author of Comment on Griffith's Deal Insurance, The Continuing Scramble Among Professionals. Uh, links to both papers in the show notes for the episode. Sean, Abe, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. Andrew Jennings.